todo el mundo. Was really... 1881. What's up, everybody? I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson, author of the Rock and Roll Nightmares book series and director of the film The Ventures Stars on Guitars. You are listening to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast for people who love music from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And now, on to the show. Today, my guest and co-host is Darren Gordon-Smith. We co-wrote two short stories in the Rock and Roll Nightmares book series, fiction editions set in the 60s and the 80s. He's also my collaborator on the new rock and roll comedy film, The Second Age of Aquarius, which is on topic for our discussion today, fictional rock bands in film. Welcome, Darren. Thank you. It's finally nice to meet you, Stacy. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I always feel like I should say that, but it's like we know each other so well, so it's nice to see you virtually for a change. Right? Yeah, it's not my still photo this time. No, that's not, and you're freaking me out because you're moving around like your face is, uh, you know, <laughs> but anyway, thanks for having me on. I do appreciate that, and I think it's a great series of what you're doing. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Um, and so is the second age of Aquarius. But for the listeners who have been remiss and not watched it yet, um, can you tell them a little bit about the film? First, I'll shame you for not watching the film Second Age of Aquarius. But uh, but yes, the second age of Aquarius is this film that Stacy and I have done. Um, it's co-produced with Brooke Bellis and Nancy Long. Second Age of Aquarius is a kind of a, it's a rom-com sci-fi rock and roll experience. It's a lot of fun. It's, it's about a, a young woman who wants to bring her favorite rock star back to life. And when she does, there are, well, she gets a lot more than she bargained for. So she's got a rock star who just will not leave the house. Um, it's funny. It's over the top. We got great original music that's that's nineteen um, sixties oriented and inspired, and it's available right now on iTunes and Amazon, just about anywhere that you stream your movies. You know, I mean, while it's good to have touchstones from the real world when you're creating a fictional character, um, like for instance, some of the viewers of our movie said they see a little bit of. Jim Morrison in Russell Aquarius, but of course we do strive to be unique. So 
Um, what's one of your favorite scenes in the movie that really shows Russell the character off? Well, I think there's a couple. One is it kind of shows his hedonistic rock star character um, when we first meet him and he's peeing into the toilet and his his urine is uh, it's essentially rainbow colored and he's just worries about mix, mixing cream to mint with mescaline. I think that tells you a lot about his uh, hedonistic character. But also, I think that we see him asking Alberta, the lead woman, the woman who essentially made him, brought him back to life. She's asked, he's asking, well, if this is the 20, 21st century, it's like, what do people do for enlightenment? He's still a child of the 60s. He's still hedonistic to some degree, but he's also somebody in his own light and comedic way, I suppose, looking for the things that in the 1960s, a lot of people in the counterculture were looking at, uh, which is to say, not just sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but finding a reason for why they were on the planet. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely got some of those characteristics from a lot of rockers that we've read about who were using their drugs to sort of enlighten their minds as well. And, um, but we, you know, and we also have like some comedic moments. We've got uh, the talents of Brooke Lewis Bellis, who you mentioned earlier, who's also a producer and she plays Alberta's hair band obsessed stuck in the eighties mom. And then um, we have Martin Olson, who's a comedy writer actually as Sid Greenblatt, um, he plays Russell's greedy manager, and he's um, he's been alive all this time, so he's now in his 80s. Um, when we were creating him, I was kind of thinking of some managers from real life, like Don Arden, who, of course, is a larger-than-life character, um, Brian Epstein, who managed the Beatles, uh, Bill Siddons. Um, of course, there's a, a, a dash of Captain Ron <laughs> with the <laughs> eye patch there. Uh, and <laughs> now, did you have anyone in mind when we were creating Sid? Yeah, there were a few also, in addition to the ones you're seeing, uh, Mickey Most, whoever was the guy who was the father of Sharon Osbourne. Right, born. that's Don Arden. Yeah, uh -huh. Don yeah, Arden. he was okay, thank really you. supposed uh, to be super tough. Yeah, but also in my mind, I kind of was thinking of of uh, Saul Goodman, of Better Call Saul, and and um, um, Breaking Bad. Just kind of somebody who's like a quick thinker. Like if a Saul Goodman, Bob Odenkirk were eighty years old. He's still thinking on his feet. He's still bullshitting, um, you know, when he needs to. There's a here's a guy, Sid Greenblatt, our guy. Money is king, but of course he has a very twisted relationship with his wife, a very sadomasochistic one. So it kind of gives Sid just a little bit of a an edge, I guess, over maybe Don Arden. But of course we don't know who he was married to, so. I guess Sharon Osborne maybe came from a test tube. Who knows? It could be, or she comes from a long line of uh, pigeon biters. And so when <laughs> she saw, she met, uh, you know, Ozzy, she's like, that's it. That's the pigeon head biter I've been looking for my entire life. You never know. You don't know. In fact, you don't want to know. Probably not, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So we're going to, uh, on this episode, talk about five movies 
featuring fictional rock stars and bands. Um, we're going to do that in a minute. But in your opinion, what creates the most memorable made up characters in rock? Is it the music, the screenwriting, the actor that's cast, an amalgam of all? Or Well, I, I, I definitely think it's in a combination of those. But I think really the most important is the screenplay. Um, in some of the movies we're going to talk about, the acting is great. The lead actors are great. It's just really the story that's problematic or there's other ones where the music is excellent but again the story the character is a little bit too um, cliched let's say so i do think that somehow it really has it's more than the music and it's more than anything else it really has to be a good story before we move on to the main show i have to ask you the standard question on this podcast What's your own personal rock and roll nightmare? I was thinking of a few in my years of, of touring and, and years of gigging and seeing people get in fights in front of me on stage. So somebody actually had to run off stage because somebody had lit the stage on fire. But I really think the first actual nightmare I had is my very first gig with a band in high school. And I've been asked not to tell this story, but I'll tell it anyway. So I'm in this band, first band. Um, it's called Leprosy. That was the name of our band, Leprosy. Nice. That was our catch. <laughs> Me and my friend Jay, we both played guitar, but he was the lead singer. I played lead guitar. And he was this guy who had this hair like who was that guy like Sean Cassidy and one of those guys and he had these long flowing hair and he, I mean like Robert Plant he was always looking at his hair and it's like everything had to be perfect so he's a good guy Jay but we decided we got our first gig we're 15 years old we got our first gig at some party in San Jose and we're all excited about it we decide like oh we're, these are going to be our moves we're going to go on stage we're going to be checking our picks in the audience and doing all sorts of like, I don't know, ridiculous ACDC moves. We get there, there's only like eight people at this party. They're all completely zonked out and, you know, wasted on weed. The people are sitting there just watching us and we're on stage, we're, I mean, on stage, we're in somebody's house. The only person who was like nodding along, we found out later was this woman who was deaf. But I guess she liked this because the, you know, the thing. Anyway, so we decided chucking an audience into like a, you know, a group of eight loadies out there is probably not a very good idea. But they did have a, a kegger. So we decided, oh, screw it, man. You know, this this whole rock star thing isn't gonna work out tonight because, you know, it's obvious that this isn't a rock gig. We get wasted and um, this is where I've been told not to tell the story. My friend Jay, he did a lot of singing out of his, his throat instead of his diaphragm. So consequently, oh, he had a sore throat and he was always spitting out phlegm. Well, I was drinking something from what I thought was the keg. And I was wondering why this beer had such an intense head on it. Well, I started drink, drinking and I'm like, Jay, what the hell is with that beer? He's like, why are you drinking that beer? That's where I've been spitting my phlegm. Yeah. 
So that's my rock and roll horror uh, story because I think I ran into the bathroom and puked right after that. So that it, is a rock and roll nightmare for sure. It was a nightmare and it wasn't like puking from an excess of drugs or, you know, my stomach pumped like Rod Stewart or something like that. It was from drinking head off of a beer. It was disgusting. Uh, let's move on to some more. <laughs> disgusting stories yeah, in, some, in some cases that's what everybody else says let's move on let's move on we gotta get my soul. <laughs> uh, yeah there are some actually there's a scene in one of the movies we're going to talk about where the band members before stage ritual is puking into his hand and putting it in his pocket which i did <laughs> not i didn't get that but we're going to talk about uh Velvet Goldmine, rock star, almost famous, the rocker, and Hedvig and the Angry Inch, all of Hedvig. which are fictional. Yes. Yes. So you're going to introduce our first film. All right. Our first film is our first contestant for today is the Velvet Goldmine. Um, this is a Todd Haynes story. It's from the 1990s. I, I remember watching it when I was. Uh, when I was a kid, no, I watched <laughs> it when it got came out. Um, I just remember seeing it at Blockbuster so often. I'm like, well, I got to check this thing out. The music in this film is excellent. This is a this story. It's a fictional rock star called Brian Slade, and the story is set in England in the early 1970s. And uh, basically, the guy who plays the lead, Jonathan Reese Myers is a David Bowie type character. In fact, he kind of looks like if um, Billy Idol were dressed up as uh, Ziggy Stardust. That's kind of what the, what we're looking at. The, as I said, the music is great. They, they use some original glam music from that era, but they also have people like uh, Tom York from um, OK Radio. What, are, what am I thinking of guy's name? Uh, Radiohead. Um, Radiohead, thank you. Um, yeah. He did some some music for that, some singing. It has Tony Collette as uh, Brian Slade's uh, erstwhile girlfriend. This movie, well, it's a it's a bunch of good music masquerading as a story. They do the story kind of Citizen Kane style. So essentially, we're talking about this glam rock star who, in this in the film, he's supposed to have faked his own death in, you know, in 1974. And so they interview all these people who knew him and they talk about him. The guy is, he's this pretty boy who, <laughs> strangely enough, it's like if you had David Bowie and his characters in, from the 70s, but then he took all the fun and, and happiness out of his character, that would be Brian Slade. He just, everything in this movie, the story, the music, it's all secondary to the sexual exploits of this bisexual Brian Slade. It's funny, the, the, there's somebody who plays the narrator is, I think it's a relatively young Christian Bale. This is pre-American psycho Christian Bale. He's so withdrawn and and I don't, I'm not even sure he knew he was in the film. I think that they just they just filmed him while he wasn't watching, just brooding and walking around. Maybe he's waiting for takes to occur. And then afterwards they probably said, 
we got some footage of you and we want to put you in a film. We'll give you a couple of million if you just add your name to it. She's like, yeah, yeah it's kind sure. of a, a nebbish glam guy. Yes, exactly. So, oh my God. So the film to me is like, it's sad and slow. And, and I guess that's the reason why I didn't even remember watching it in the 90s. As I said, the music is really good. And I think Tom, Todd Haynes, the director and writer, he really seems to love and appreciate the glam music of that era. So I, I give him credit for that, that he, he made the music sound like it should from that era. And, and they, they didn't skimp on that. Um, the story, however, is that's another story. In fact, it's not even a story. So yes, the, the story is not a story. So it is a very strange film, um, but that's, I, I'm not sure I would recommend it. Although I do think that Ewan McGregor was great as Brian Slade's lover. And um, do we have, oh, what's his name? We just, I just love the guy. Oh, Eddie Izzard? Eddie Izzard, thank you. <laughs> I knew you were talking about, yeah. Yes, right. he's so good. I, I like him in anything. So so yeah, that's that's my take on Velvet Goldmine. All right, well, I liked it a little better than you did. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I mean, Todd Haynes, he's one of my favorite filmmakers. He made mm -hmm. um, a movie about a real rock star, uh, Bob Dylan, called I'm Not There, which we actually saw together at a screening. That's one of my favorite films of all time. But yeah. he always adds um, sort of a fantasy element to a real story. And I liked the insidery little things in um, Velvet Gold Mine. The Brian Slade album cover is mirrors um, a lesser known glam artist from the time, um, Joe Bryath which maybe a lot of people don't know, but he was the first openly gay glam musician. He never quite caught on, but the album cover is kind of a mirror to that. And then there's also the um, famous guitar fellatio imagery, the photo that Mick Rock took of Bowie and Ronson uh -huh. in the early 70s. They, they have that and they have just some really fun kind of insider nods to fans of glam rock in that early era. And you can see like some of the characters, like you said, uh, Brian Slade is Bowie S, but he's gay. I think he's gay in the movie, but I just was recently reading, you know, on the movie and I, I saw that David Bowie said, I was always a closet heterosexual, you know, because back then <laughs> in the glam days, it was like cool to be bisexual, but he never really was, you know, I mean, like, I guess he experimented with that. But in the film, he is gay because the filmmaker Todd Haynes is gay. Um, right. and then, then we have Kurt Wilde, who's played by Ewan McGregor that you mentioned. He's kind of an Iggy Pop-esque character. Mm -hmm. So for me, that's fun. I like the fantasy element of it, the great music, like you said. So I enjoy it. And Eddie Izzard, um, he's based on Tony DeFreeze, who's Bowie's second manager. So there's a lot of Bowie parallels in there. So if you're a big mm -hmm. Bowie fan, it's definitely a fun movie to watch. Yeah, and you know, I mean, I read that Bowie, they'd asked Bowie whether he wanted to contribute some of his music to it, and apparently it, he rejected that proposal, not because he didn't want to be involved with the film, it's just that he's apparently, Bowie had his own film that he was trying to work on that would yeah. have been more of his story, 
And I don't think that was ever released, right? I don't, I don't remember no, hearing it. No, not that I'm aware of, huh? Well, after the fact, Bowie did watch Velvet Goldmine, and he said, really, the only thing that was things that were good in the movie were the sex scenes. So, <laughs> well, he would. Yeah, but it is funny you should say that. that you know, I remember reading a, an interview with Bowie, and this is from maybe the 90s, and they were asking about this glam period and, you know, his sexuality and all that. It's like almost after the fact, he's, he's talking about being a closet hetero. And, uh, but the interviewer's like, well, wait a minute. I don't get hetero. He goes, like, what about those dresses he used to wear? And Bowie just went back in anger he goes fake anger he goes those were men's dresses <laughs> well our next film is one called Rockstar that came out uh way back in 2001 and it was uh among the first films that I covered as an entertainment journalist and you know I remember liking it but most everyone else trashed it and it pretty much bombed um I hadn't watched it since so um I revisited the movie for this podcast, and um, it's not great, but I still like it. It's entertaining enough. Mark Wahlberg stars as Izzy, the lead singer of a cover band, and um, they follow the lead of the famous and fictional Steel Dragon, which is a hard rock metal band. And the movie is actually based, you know, kind of loosely on what happened when Judas Priest replaced Rob Halford with the lead singer of a tribute band. So, um, in fact, there's kind of a funny line in the movie where Izzy, who takes his tribute band way too seriously, says, we are not a cover band. We're a tribute band. Um, so <laughs> I think he's good. You know, he's really good as the overwrought wannabe rock star. But the movie itself, Mark Wahlberg, even though he was a rapper for a minute there. He doesn't do his own singing. It's other people doing the singing, but they did bring in some real rockers for the Steel Dragon Band. We've got um, Jason Bonham, who's John Bonham from Led Zeppelin's son, and he plays a drummer. And they actually have a, a scene of him trashing a hotel room, which his dad was famous for. We've got Zach Wilde and Jeff Pilsen. So that kind of adds a little gravitas to the real band. Um, yeah, it, I, I think Jason Bonham does actually a great job. And he had a few speaking lines and everything. Yeah. I, I almost didn't recognize him because I, rec you know, I know him from like, you know, being shaved head or whatever. He didn't look like I remembered him. He did a great job. And, and I would also just say, just since we're talking about a great shout out to him. He's really, you know, he's obviously been under the shadow of his, his incredibly talented father. But Jason Bonham is a fantastic drummer in his own right. And I think his dad, if he were alive, he would be extremely proud to know what a great drummer and the kind of energy that Jason Bonham brings to just about everything I've seen him play in. Um, so that was one of the great things of the film, seeing him. I love Mark Wahlberg in general. He's one of my favorite actors. So I did like, I liked his commitment to the part. Um, I think it has, it has heart to some degree. I think the, you know, the, the things that are kind of problematic is, I mean, here, here's, here's kind of dovetails back to what we were talking about. What makes a great rock film? Is it just the story? Is it characters, the music? Well, in this case, I think that the story is so cliched um, that it's really hard to go beyond that, particularly if you're not trying to make a funny ha-ha film. 
like we're going to talk about rocker later and i think that's an example of a kind of a cliched story but it's taken in a light way um rockstar i think it it it, it does have great acting mark Wahlberg's great um just about everybody i think in that in that thing is great the music i uh, i know that a lot of people uh, with judas priest had a problem with the music i i think the music is pretty cliched yeah, it's standard um, issue, like rock slash metal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the only thing I guess I could say in its in its defense is the the lyrics are a little more interesting than the kind of traditional yob music that they have. I was amazed that most of the lyrics don't rhyme. They don't even try to rhyme, which in a way I think was a bold, kind of cool move, particularly when it's set against everything else which is so cliched but they are really real musicians like you mentioned who are actually playing and whoever did the main vocals that who did mark Wal Wahlberg's vocals is excellent i mean yeah, I, I, yeah. that guy is an incredible singer and i know like there was one guy he did most of it there was another guy who's from third eye blind who did some of the singing too but the vocals were were great like you said based loosely on somebody who was in a tribute band who gets to take over with Judas Priest. The movie, it's sad because it came out a few days before September 11th, 2001. So obviously, even if it was a great film, it wouldn't have got its due. Um, it was, interestingly enough, that's 20 years ago, more than 20. And since that time, we've had the guy, the lead singer of Boston died. So a guy from the tribute band becomes the lead singer of Boston. And then, of course, Journey. Journey, the guy who was in the lead, he was in a tribute band in the Philippines. He's been the lead singer of Journey, I think, longer than the main guy. Than wow, really? <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so I guess it is funny because since then, there's been even more like true to life tribute bands to fame stories than, than Rockstar. Yeah, it's, it's a fun story in that regard, but, you know, it was definitely more of a rom-com than I would have liked or expected, you know, with Jennifer Aniston in it, it's like, okay, here comes yes, the, the rom-com. Right, exactly, and, and no spoiler alerts here except to say that the inevitable change up in the, you know, the rug pull and the, the way that they resolve is so easy and so ridiculous that it kind of makes you wonder like, why did I, why was I even, you know, involved emotionally at all with this story when it was just so easy to resolve? Yeah, and it's like you said, the movie doesn't really quite know what it wants to be. It wants to be a comedy. It wants to be like a wish fulfillment story about mm -hmm. this singer whose dream come true job. And then it's a rom-com. And so, right. yeah. It, doesn't quite work, but it's entertaining enough. Well, I'll say those people, everybody is aged really well in those films because Jennifer Aniston looks exactly the same 21 years later. She does, yeah. Mark Wahlberg. Oh, and, and you know, the, the one who plays the manager of this fictitious band. Oh, Timothy name? Spall. Yeah, he's awesome. Yeah. Oh, he was great. <laughs> right, exactly. But um, yeah, you mentioned that no one really aged in the cast. So maybe there was something in the beer on that set. That could be. <laughs> 
and I, it's that phlegm in the beer that will keep you alive. Yeah. Long great. after you want to live. And now to our next film. What is our next film? Almost Famous. Okay. I mean, there's a movie that transcends the genre. It, it trans, I mean, it helps that it's a true story, but, you know, it could be, a, there's plenty of true stories that are not that interesting. But the fact is, this is uh, Cameron Crowe's semi-autobiographical story of being a young rock journalist in the early 70s. The movie has heart. I mean, there's there's so much good to say about it. And it kind of goes back to what we're, we're talking about. All these, just about all these films, I believe, have really good actors in them. So it's just a question of, you know, is your story really good? And, and almost famous I, the story is fantastic. The whole thing has heart. There's a there's an arc of the character. I, I, I who is the guy who plays the journalist who plays the Cameron Crowe thing? Because he's great. Oh, Patrick Fugit plays the lead character, and Billy Crudup is the main rock star in it. Yeah. And, and Jason Lee also is one of the rock stars. And I thought the band Stillwater that they created really did have a realism to it. You could imagine that band actually being famous or almost famous in the Yeah, yeah, for 70s. sure. It did, I, I had read that, you know, uh, Nancy Wilson of Heart, who was married to Cameron Crowe at the time, she did the music, helped with the music. Um, I think Cameron Crowe actually co-wrote some of the songs with her. It's realistic, the music, and plus the, Cameron Crowe was able to license a lot of music from that era too. So it really did, it, it felt very accurate to me. And of course, let's not forget Philip Seymour Hoffman, the late great Philip Seymour Hoffman as the um, Lester Bangs is, is the venerable true venerable uh, rock critic from the 1970s. Didn't he write for Cream magazine? He sure did. Yeah, man. Uh, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman is just does such a great job. Yeah, he's um, excellent. He's kind of the long distance mentor of this young rock journalist played by uh, Patrick Fugit. And he does a really great job of uh, offering rather acerbic advice, but um, very, you know, also very realistic. And I think that realism really draws you into the characters of this movie where mm -hmm. it never gets old. You know, you can watch it anytime and it still feels like the first time. Yeah, really. <laughs> To, to use a foreign type of <laughs> I am thing. quoting some lyrics there, yeah. Yeah, I, I it made me cold as ice, actually. And, um, <laughs> but it was urgent to watch it, so. Um, yeah, no, the, a great film, and with Frances McDormand as the annoying, overprotective, but loving mom of the rock, st uh, rock journalist. Uh -huh. And I had forgotten that, uh, yeah, I love her. What's her name? The, the older sister who was the... Um, she was like the airline stewardess, they call them stewardess. Oh, was that Zoe Dachanel? Did she? Yes. Yeah, Zoe. yeah. Yeah, and I love the, the costumes and the outfits that, that she had on. And, of course, the groupies, which are band-aids in the film. Yes. Um, yeah, they're sympathetic characters. Kate Hudson plays Penny Lane, the main groupie. That's her best role, I think. I, yeah. That was my favorite role of hers and. You know, it's funny you said about Zoe Dashamel. She looks, I've always thought she looks a lot like Katy Perry. 
and apparently mm -hmm. I'm not yes. the only one. They both get mistaken for the other. And oh, really? I read that they have a they have a little rule, which is that if they're mistaken for the other, they will always be nice. Because <laughs> if if Zoe Dashnell is mistaken for Katy Perry and she's a real bitch, and everybody would be like, I hate Katy Perry. She was a terrible person. So I thought that was funny. They have this thing where they'd be like, they will not disparage the other. So so, um, but I always thought they looked very similar, but apparently I'm not the only one. Uh, I like the fact that Cameron Crowe uses stories from his own life as a very young journalist. Um, Fast Times at Ridgemont High is probably one of my favorite films of all time. And that's also based on when he went undercover in a high school in the San Fernando Valley. Uh, he was, I think he was in his 20s, but he looked young enough to be in high school. And that was a really heartfelt story that still, even though it came out in the 80s, um, still, you know, resonates today. Yeah, for sure. I love that. That's one of my favorite films, too. I love, and of course, there, there is a Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Talk about all these stars who started out in that and became famous, like yeah. John Penn and Jennifer Jason Lee. I love Cameron Crowe. And, and I actually was, I was watching him being interviewed for Charlie Rose. I mean, this this is how all these um, you know talk about. It was pre Me Too, Charlie Rose, and it's kind of hard oh, to. Right. It's kind of even hard to watch that show without thinking of Charlie Rose, you know, being naked and you know harassing his staffers because that's that's an image you don't want to get out of your mind. They, he interviewed um, Cameron Crowe around the time when Almost Famous came out, and it was great. Cameron Crowe was just talking about, number one, it was a kind of a love letter to his own childhood and growing up, but also he said it really was like the, the main thing about the movie is the importance of family, whether it's your own family or in the case of this, this movie, all the rock stars and the groupies and everybody else who become Zert's family or Zat's family when you're on the road. And, and I think that you know, only Cameron, can, Cameron Crowe can really deliver these kinds of stories with a kind of heart, you know, without self-consciousness, without snarkiness or whatever. He can get away with it and it doesn't ever seek to me it never seems corny or or anything like that it's it just seems very legitimate and very sincere and then your uh reminder of the naked charlie rose kind of brings me naturally to segue into our next film which is about a naked drummer uh the rocker <laughs> that's another movie that I covered as an entertainment journalist at the press junket. And um, like Rockstar, I hadn't seen it since it came out. Um, this one's from 2008, and it's uh, about the former drummer of an 80s hair band, uh, Robert Fish Fishman, who's played by Rain Wilson. Probably most people remember him best as Dwight in the Office TV series, or horror fans know him as Fishboy from uh, House of a Thousand Corpses. Um, anyway, he lived his dream as a rock and roll god until his bandmates kicked him to the curb and it's loosely based they say on Pete Best from the Beatles but I don't I didn't really see that um, but anyway cut to 20 years later when Fish gets a second shot at rock and roll stardom um, when his teenage nephew's high school group hires him as the new drummer I like the band Vesuvius it's a very <laughs> you know over the top hair band joke band almost uh, there's Bradley Cooper and Fred Armisen, who is, uh, he's actually a musician himself. He has this great special on Netflix called Stand Up for Drummers. 
which is yeah. one of my favorite. Yeah, I love that. So anyway, that's a fun. The band is really funny. I love the way they out, you know, costume them and their music is supposed to be really goofy and over the top. But actually, I liked that music more than I liked, you know, the band that was supposed to be good <laughs> for the high school band. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally did, too. And I think this is a movie unlike Rockstar. The rocker knows that it's supposed to be a comedy. The people in it are great. It, it really kind of goes along to me as like a typical SNL movie. You know, it's got all the SNL people in it. Um, it hits all the right notes. You know, Rain Wilson does an admirable job. I think for me, his character is a little too close to Jack Black's from School of Rock. So yeah, um, I kind of saw that too. Yeah, so I mean, he's. You mentioned it before. I had written this down. That was the first thing I saw. It's like he goes, "I like to rock a pocket of puke for good luck." I know what that. Looks right into his hand, puts it into his pocket, and he goes, oh. "Are you kidding me? This is what I do for good luck." That that was really great. Oh, and young Emma Stone. I didn't know idea she looked that young. She was like, and and Josh Gad. He he was the he's supposed to be the nephew who has the band. I mean, the guy really did look like he was like 18 years, 17 years old. I don't I don't know how old he really is, but man, that guy. Yeah, well, you know, uh, I thought, yeah, Josh Gad and Emma Stone were great. Um, I didn't really like, I'm not sure how to pronounce his last, or excuse me, her now, um, Teddy Geiger or Geiger is a mm -hmm. uh, she now, but was yes. a male in the film. Um, but, you know, I thought that the singing and the group was a little too bland and popish for my taste. You know, having said that, um, Geiger or Geiger uh, is mm -hmm. the songwriter for a lot of number one hits and worked with Pink and Maroon 5 and wow. Christina Aguilera, One Direction. So I didn't really like I never would have guessed that from watching the film. Me neither. There's this one scene where he's wearing a slipknot shirt, and that was one of the funniest things in the movie. <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking, name three songs. There are some good laughs in The Rocker. I love the, uh, spoiler alert, but the movie is several years old. Um, I love toward the end when um, Fish, you know, kind of runs into his old band members, and they're all speaking with British accents now. <laughs> yeah. Back when we were American, you know, <laughs> it's really funny. I love that too. Um, and one of my, there's another kind of a spoiler alert, but not really, because it's at the beginning of the film. Um, we see a scene where, where Rain Wilson gets into a fight and he's in a parking lot. And the next scene we see Rain Wilson in his apartment, in his bedroom sleeping and a cop is in the room. And the cop keeps trying to wake him up and, and Rain Wilson is like, come on, get out of here. And he's talking to the cop in this weird way. It turns out the cop is, is Rain Wilson's brother. They get into a scuffle and the cop is like, mom, mom, tell him to get <laughs> off of me, mom. So I, I, that guy was great. And he's, his older brother is the guy who's in The Wedding Singer. He plays the douchebag. Did you ever see The Wedding Singer with uh, Adam Sandler? Uh, yeah, I did see it, but generally this is um, an Adam Sandler-free zone. Yes, I, I try to block those out too. And, and actually my Alexa, whenever I'm like asking for a movie, it's like she gives me an Adam Sandler film and she'll be like, we couldn't find 
almost famous, but we did find an Adam Sandler film. I'm like, no more Adam Sandler films. And it's like, oh, you would like more Adam Sandler films? I'm like, no, I hate Adam Sandler. And it's like, here's the next Adam Sandler film. So it's, it's like, yes, I, I'm with you on the Adam Sandler story, but, but I thought Adam Sandler did a great job in that film, The Wedding Singer. And I only bring it up because there was a douchebag who plays the boyfriend of Drew Barrymore. And um, he is the older brother. He plays the older brother in The Rocker. And the guy's really funny because he's made a career out of playing good looking douchebags. Um, and he actually is pretty funny. So yeah, but, he was funny. And then they also have, you know, the great Howard Hessman, um, but he's totally wasted in his role as the bus driver. I mean, he has a couple yeah, lines and like, why is he even in there if they're not going to utilize his great comedic jobs? Yeah, I didn't even know it was him till afterwards, too. Yeah. It's, it, uh, it's funny. There's a guy who got for the late Howard Hessman who got typecast. And I, I don't think I'd ever seen him in any other roles except having to do with rock and roll and being like a burnout rock and mm -hmm. roll, you know, whatever. The one they became famous on WKRP in Cincinnati. That to me was like his character in just about everything I ever saw him in. But I liked him. It's 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 good that we can pay tribute to him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's good to see him in there, but he didn't get enough to do, in no. my opinion. Uh, but no. the director, um, Peter Cataneo, he had, but he directed The Full Monty, which I thought was oh, really a great film. I love that film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If only like The Rocker would have just had, I don't know, it's just missing something for me. It's good, but it's not great. And it could have been as good as The Full Monty because it had all the elements there, but it just doesn't quite, you know, come together for me. Well, yeah, well, me neither. It is hard, I would think, to make a great film from a kind of a tired premise. You know, in this case, the one you mentioned, the, 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 he was a rock, you know, rock star, you know, would be rock star, kicked out of his band. And 20 years later, he's going into this band play. I mean, all that seems so post Spinal Tap to me. I did have like, it, it knew what it wanted to be which was not to be a serious film. So I give it credit for that. Yeah. I think you know, Rain Wilson did a great job. I, I agree with you about the music. It, it was interesting, the band that they're, you know, the, the modern band, the one that he's yeah, in. Yeah, ADD, right? Yes, yeah. it reminded me kind of like Adam Schlesinger. Here's another late great Adam Schlesinger, the guy who did a lot of music for, one of my favorite rock films, which is That Thing You Do. Mm -hmm. um, I have not seen that since I love that out. film with uh, Tom Hanks. They kind of, their, their music, I think that the band in The Rocker is doing, it, had, it kind of sounded reminiscent of like the Rembrandts or, you know, the kind of poppy neo-British rock of the 1990s to me. Yeah, so, definitely. Yeah. So yeah, Jeff Vesuvius, as over the top and silly as they were, I actually enjoyed that music a lot more. Yes, and I enjoyed it a lot more than Rockstar with that fake band, Steel <laughs> Dragon or whatever it was. To me, a lot of these things, at least they're being funny. You know, a lot of things post Spinal Tap, I just don't even know how people would take seriously anyway. Now, I mean, just there's so many bands that it was funny enough before Spinal Tap, but come on, after a Spinal Tap came out and just roasted that whole genre and the silliness of it all, 
you had people who were actually in bands taking that kind of spandex rock seriously. Uh -huh. And I find that just to be laughable in and of itself. It's a very lampoonable music genre for sure. Yes, lampoonable. That, that, <laughs> I made up a word. There's a great, I'm going to use that for any of my film criticism. Yep. It's lampoonable. Now you, uh, of course, people may not know, but you're the co-creator of Repo, the Genetic Opera, which is a rock and roll sci-fi music opera. And it was started out as a stage play, and so did our next film. So if you could talk about that a little bit, also just as an insider on how you kind of go from stage to screen with something like this. Well, the next movie we're going to be talking about is Hedwig and the Angry Inch, which is John Cameron Mitchell and Stephen Trask, as you mentioned, based on a stage play, which I saw uh, when I was writing Repo, the Genetic Opera. These, I, I, there's so many great things I can say about stage show and the film. First of all, like I said, I saw it as a stage show first and um, was a little reticent to see the, the movie just because I don't generally tend to like uh, movies of musicals if, if they're just going to be essentially filming as a stage play, you know, or just, and, and I was very pleasantly surprised when I saw the movie Hedwig, The Angry Inch, a few years later. They kept the story in the heart of the stage play, but they managed to use the, the scenes and, and extrapolate things that didn't, to me, feel like just a recreation of a stage play that it was actually a movie that that really went on its own I think um, maybe in the way that the movie Grease in the 70s did as well you know I mean that that, that they, I think they did a good admirable job with um, the Grease movie having even before that film come out having seen the Grease stage show you know dozens of times I was pleasantly surprised. So Hedwig and the Angry Inch, I think is, is great on so many different levels um, and, and was such a big influence on me when I was writing Repo, um, not the least of which for the reason that I really have always been interested in stories that are just bizarre and out there, but that still manage to keep Heart, a sense of heart and emotion in them. And I, I love the idea of just going just as crazy as you possibly can be, and yet still being honed down in an experience that people can all identify with. So Hedwig and the Angry Inch, just is for many who haven't seen it before, it's about a person who has a botched sex change operation which you know and it makes them end up with an angry inch it's uh the the woman is hedwig she's from east germany there are lots of things in here which would just feel like well it's outside the experience of most people <laughs> I, I hope, hope. <laughs> yeah that's very um, extreme it very yes but I, I do know like when I saw the stage show, 
there was not a dry eye in the audience when there was when the you know essentially the mic drops and there's all these these things going on everybody can relate to those very same emotions of loneliness of depression or whatever of love and unrequited love and all those things and to be able to make that out of a universe of just crazy stuff i think is is that's kind of what I've always wanted to do with my music and with my stories. And, um, and I, I feel like Hedwig did it really well. And then let's say we can't even do this without talking about the music. Music in Hedwig, oh my God, I love the music. It's it. Now here's another, just like we talked about Velvet Goldmine. Hedwig is very influenced by glam music of the early 70s. The music is very, I think it's very accessible. Singing along with, even though, even if you've never heard the song before, Stephen Trask is the guy who did most of the music and he, he's very, very talented. And I, I do remember that when Hedwig started as an off-off Broadway production in New York, David Bowie had seen it and he was immediately loved it and he, offered to put money into the production. And the reason I bring that up is I think it is it is very influenced by the Bowie music of the 70s. Um, it's kind of almost like some of the music is a cross between Bowie and Rocky Horror and that kind of time warp era. Yeah, musicals. that's a great analogy. Yeah, thanks. Um, so I, I think I, I love the music. I have the soundtrack. I. Hadn't heard it in years till watching the film again and songs like Wig in a Box. These these are just wonderful music songs. It, it sung well. John Cameron Mitchell is the one who plays the lead. They is very talented. So uh, I have many great things to say about Hedwig. Absolutely. What a voice and the poignancy, just you know, the acting with their their eyes, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it just really brings the inner turmoil of the character to life. And Hedvig is both cruel and vulnerable and mm -hmm. desperate, yet hopeful. And mm -hmm. so I really feel like it brings that home. I did not um, see the stage play, but I remember seeing the film when it first came out and really loving it. And then for whatever reason, I hadn't revisited it but um you know I loved it just as much it, it it's kind of interesting how it and also um John Cameron Mitchell directed it as well mm. so it's like a huge undertaking yeah. um, and the film uses like illustration and flashbacks and surrealism and you know it's just really super unique uh, I don't know how I felt about the animation to me like the animation maybe isn't quite the style that I would have liked it was maybe a little cruder than i like something more like um pink floyd's the wall or heavy metal or sort of like cartoon live action film like that but overall i mean that's a very minor quibble yeah and 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 by the way they used that in the stage show too oh, they, did they? Uh, okay was it projected on a screen behind yeah okay. yeah i remembered liking it at the time but the primitivism of that of the animation I think is kind of overdone these days mm -hmm. so you see it a lot in in things so it's not as necessarily fresh as as when I first saw it but 
You're right. I mean, it, 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 that to me is always a, is a slight quibble over a, a movie that has heart. And I think it's a really good example, Hedwig and Almost Famous is a good example of taking the rock genre, this rock and roll genre, but being able to do something with it to make a story that's not spinal tap, that's not cliche, that doesn't sound like you know, the standard arc of any musician's biopic of, you know, we're all start out poor and we're all friends and it was family and then we make it and get big time and now we're all on drugs and we get divorced and everything. And then at the end, we need to realize what life is all about. You know, like, you know, I mean, that's like the standard thing, right? And it's like, it gets to be so cliched and corny, but, but I think that shows it's not the genre itself of rock and roll and films that I think is tired. It's just the the that that kind of tired rock star um, story that we've heard since for reals from since Jim Morrison and any of the '60s idols who in real life actually died. It's funny. It's it's almost. I, I remember reading an interview with Pete Townsend. You know, rock and roll was just a, it was just this genre that lasted only for a few years be before everybody started fetishizing and being nostalgic about it. In just true life, true form, Pete Townsend wrote um, Quadrophenia in 1973 after the, the Who had been around for what, like seven years at that point? They were right. already... They were already thinking nostalgia. They're already thinking of the past, thinking of, and I think when I was growing up, um, this would be in the 70s, there was already this mythology that had already been written about Woodstock, about Altamont, about all the 70s rock star, uh, 60s rock stars. And we're going, we're talking about like 1976 here. You know, it, it is funny how most of rock and roll has really been about looking at the past. And then, and then I guess maybe that's a function of the idea that rock and roll is supposed to be a young genre of people in their youth. And so people are always trying to recreate that magic, I guess, of being a teenager or something. I don't know. But, yeah, but rock music of the 70s, it's just amazing how it's endured in the 80s, too. I mean, if you look at a film trailer for a Marvel movie, you don't really hear much modern music. It's always something from the golden age of rock. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It is It is funny. And, and I mean, and for good reason. I mean, I think both of us are big fans of music of that era. Yeah. Having done a lot of research for our movie for um, the second age of Aquarius, I did listen to a lot more 60s music than I'd ever listened to in my life. And I was a big fan before. But you do realize, or at least I did, people talk about how this is a golden age of music. Well, you know what? 90% of that music back then was crap. Just like 90% of the music now is probably crap. Um, we don't live in an era where the music is worse than it was at any time. In fact, I probably think music, there is more good music and more good musicians and more interesting and creative music now than at any time that I've been alive on this planet. 
Um, but there is something I think all of us can kind of relate to in um, the 70s and 60s classic music. Things felt new, things felt fresh. Personalities of the musicians, you could hear in their playing, like John Bonham, you know, I mean, it wasn't just all about the singer and American Idol and then just have a bunch of faceless um, musicians playing synthesizers like a lot of times these days. The, the musicians, I think that the musicians, they were as important as the singer. The singer was a musician in the band, like Robert Plant was like another um, instrumentalist in a sense. He played a hell of a tambourine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he could, he could rock a girl's shirt that's 10 times too small for him too. He was good at that. <laughs> right. Um, but I, I do I do appreciate that the music of that era was new for the time. And you listen to look at the, look at how music changed from the Beatles. I want to hold your hand. And then two years later, you've got you got things like I am the walrus and Helter Skelter. These things just change so quickly, whereas you can you can tell if a song was released in 1969 versus 1966. Nowadays, I don't think you'd be able to tell if a song was five years old. No, know? you're right. Yeah, there was more of um, a distinctive evolution back then. And you bring up the Beatles as um, an example. I mean, I like the post-drugs Beatles way more than I like the <laughs> Hold yes. Your Hand uh, Mop Top Beatles. I mean, the White Album is, you know, one of my favorites and actually Helter Skelter is my favorite Beatles song of all yeah. times. But if you played that song to someone, you know, entirely new to the planet and then you played I Want to Hold Your Hand, they would never guess it was the same band. Yeah, exactly. And I, I'm with you, White Album's my favorite. And, um, and it, yeah, and, and of course the, the flip side to, of course, all this is that probably up till maybe 10 years ago, up, certainly up until at least the internet era, there was a mass marketing that existed that doesn't exist anymore. I mean, which is to say, you know, I was growing up, if you didn't watch that last episode of Dallas, you know, everybody's like, what's wrong with you? You didn't watch that. Nowadays, it's like, there's so many TV shows. If you didn't watch that, other people are like, hey, that's a good show. You probably ought to watch it. But we don't have mass market like that. So the downside to all that stuff back then with the Beatles is that it was trendy, right? So, you know, it's 1967. So now everybody's got to have a sitar. And if you don't play sitar, you know, you're out, you know, you're just old fashioned. We, I don't, obviously that has downsides to be trendy and to always be looking at the next biggest thing and the culture of the sixties. And then you had a counterculture, but the counterculture was almost as monolithic as the culture is, and you didn't have all these subgenres that exist today. Yeah, and you mentioned Wig in a Box, which is a really great song, and the lyrics, of course. Um, I also love Sugar Daddy and um, Wicked Little Town, I think is probably one of the more beloved songs from the film. Yeah, and Sugar Daddy was like in a live stage show. Here's uh, it, actually the person who I saw on the stage show was not John Cameron Mitchell sadly but that whoever it was i was equally as good it was fantastic but what i do remember is that 
he or Hedwig would go out into the audience and sit on people's laps while singing Sugar Daddy. <laughs> and and I just remember looking at a lot of the, I think the, the actor would always find like the straightest looking, most businessman, whatever, middle of the road looking type and sit on that guy's lap. Uh, I just remember thinking like these people that are sitting on the sitting on the lap of these people, they probably be the last person to go to a show like this but they seem to be enjoying it as much as everybody else. So it was, it was great. It was a real universality. Of, so interactive. Yeah, was that yeah. Um, Neil Patrick Harris that you saw or was it somebody else? It was somebody else. I, I didn't even know that Neil Patrick Harris had done that until I was looking it up recently. I, I would have loved to see that. that would yeah, he's that. a super gifted actor. Well, thanks for uh, joining me, Darren, on this sure. musical odyssey. And um, just to wrap up uh, that all those movies, actually, we watched them they're all on demand, and so is the Second Age of Aquarius. It's on uh, Amazon, iTunes, YouTube, and wherever you find movies. And then the music, uh, your soundtrack for the Second Age of Aquarius is available through. Is it on Spotify or where can? It's on Spotify, play? Amazon Music, iTunes, anywhere where you get your music. I think that um, I'm hoping that everybody can see the Second Age of Aquarius and see we we're, we're you and I. Are, are just huge fans of rock and roll. We're huge fans of the, the essentially the genre of the music, that, uh, the genre of the movies that we've just been talking about today. And I hope that people can watch the second age of Aquarius and get the references that we're making because um, it's a fun film and it's funny, but I do feel in my non-objective way, I do feel like the movie has heart and I'm hope and I know that the actors, Christina Jacqueline Kalf and Michael Ursu, who are the two leads in our movie, they they really bring a lot of emotion, I think, to the character. And bringing emotion to, to comedic characters, I think, is a real tough thing and something that they really did well. Yeah, I agree. So hopefully folks will revisit some of these movies, maybe discover Aquarius. And um, well, that's it. We're, we're out of time, Darren. Oh, man. Well, I'll wait for the Neil Patrick Harris special. And um, can you have me on? <laughs> if we can get him in our next movie. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. I'll talk to you later. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. This concludes another episode of Rock and Roll Nightmares. I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson. The theme song, Out for Blood, is composed and sung by Lars with a Z, Cabot, and the band is Fuzzbuster. You can hear the whole track in the horror comedy film Valentine Days, also with a Z. For photos of the guests and show archives, please visit the website rockandrollthings.com 
That's rock and roll with an N. You can also join the Rock and Roll Nightmares Facebook group or follow us on Instagram at Rock and Roll Nightmares Books. That's B O O K S. This is an indie podcast, so your subscriptions and ratings are really important. Thank you for joining me, and until next time. <laughs>